0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell-Shaw, teacher, chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, mom, employee of the month of Rochester Middle School, and photographer. Hi, Michelle.
1: Hi, Jeremy. And hello to all of our listeners out there.
0: And congratulations on that Employee of the Month Award. That's Thank that's you great. very
1: much. Very much. <laughs>
0: well, you deserve it. So this is a special edition of Lighthearted being released on May 12th, 2021. I guess you could call this uh, Halloween and spring, maybe, because this episode is devoted to stories of haunted lighthouses in Michigan. This episode will be a bit longer than most. I think uh, people will really enjoy the interviews. We have uh, two interviews today. Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about our guests.
1: Sure, Jeremy. Diana Stamfler is a professional marketer, promoter, and public speaker, and she's also been writing professionally since her junior year in high school. She's a regular contributor to Michigan Blue magazine and has written countless articles for many Michigan travel and culture periodicals.
0: Diana worked for more than seven years at the West Michigan Tourist Association as the marketing and media director. In August 2004, she launched Promote Michigan to help market the people, places, and products of her home state.
1: Diana has been researching and promoting Michigan's lighthouses for more than 10 years. In 2019, she published her book, Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses, through the History Press. Michigan has more lighthouses than any other state, with more than 120 donning its expansive Great Lakes shoreline. Many of these lighthouses lay claim to haunted happenings.
0: Former keepers like the cigar-smoking Captain Townsend at Sichua Point and prankster John Herman at Wagashants Shoal near Mackinac City are said to maintain their watch long after death ended their duties.
1: At White River Light Station in Whitehall, Sarah Robinson still keeps a clean and tidy house, and a mysterious young girl at the Marquette Lighthouse seeks out other children and female companions. Countless spirits remain between Whitefish Point and Point Iroquois in an area well known for its many tragic shipwrecks.
0: Diana is currently writing a book called Death and Lighthouses of the Great Lakes, a history of misfortune and murder, which is due to be published in March, 2022. A native of Plainwell, Michigan, Diana is the mother of two adult children and lives in Walloon Lake in Northwest Michigan.
1: Following the interview with Diana, we'll hear an interview with Nick Korstad, owner of the Big Bay Point Lighthouse B&B in Michigan, about his own experiences.
0: But first, let's listen to my conversation with Diana Stampler now. I'm speaking today with Diana Stampler in Michigan, and uh, along with lots of other things uh, she's involved in, Diana Diana is the author of a really, really good book that I have sitting right in front of me here called uh, Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses. Thank you so much for being with me today, Diana.
2: Well, always happy to share stories with another fellow Lighthouse and Haunted fan.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And what more could you want? Lighthouses and, and ghost stories The two go together perfectly. Uh, so, uh, I was just wondering, as far as uh, your personal experience, what what came first: uh, your work in the tourism industry or your interest in lighthouses?
2: Well, they kind of came at the same time. Uh, My degree is in print and broadcast from Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, and I'd worked in PR for a while. And in 1997, I was hired in as the marketing director for an organization in in, uh, Grand Rapids called the West Michigan Tourist Association. And my very first project with them was to research and catalog all the lighthouses on Lake Michigan. And so I grew up about 45 minutes from the lake. And I certainly had seen lighthouses in my you know, childhood as going to the beach and whatnot. But it wasn't until I started working in the industry and in that first few months of that job that I realized the significance of lighthouses and the role they played in Michigan history, but also the fact that Michigan has more lighthouses than any other state. And right. so those things all kind of rolled together. Um, in that first few months of that job. And in through that, began working with them for, for seven years to publish a magazine called the Lake Michigan Circle Tour and Lighthouse Guide. And it was you know all of that, and, and, and as you know, once once you kind of get bit by that lighthouse bug, yeah, you kind of go down and you you just keep getting attached uh, further and further into that industry. So it it became a love affair that has continued ever since.
0: Right. I always warn people be careful of the lighthouse bug, but I, I like to say it's a good contagious disease as far as they they go. I cut it a while ago myself. Yeah. So, what got you interested in the stories of haunted lighthouses and related subjects?
2: So, in doing that early cataloging of the lights, and, and you, t- keep in mind, this is very early on in the internet days. I did a lot of my early research by actually calling to the museums and the historical societies in these communities to get information. And as they were giving me the details about the lighthouse and how tall the tower was, and if it was an active light, and if you could climb the tower, and if it had a museum, They would say, well, let me also tell you about our keepers. And I would start to hear early on a couple common themes. One was that we had a lot of female lighthouse keepers, and perhaps you and I can chat about that another time. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were also these ghost stories that started to pop up. And the first few were just kind of casual and I didn't really think much about them. But over time, I just became incredibly fascinated with these ghost stories and the keepers to which these stories were attached. And within about three or four years of being in that job, I developed a presentation uh, that I would give to libraries and historical societies back before PowerPoint. I was actually presenting with slides with a carousel and everything and it, uh, uh, you know, just like the love of lighthouses, the fascination with these ghost stories really took off. And at the time I was also, um, my children were young and my daughter, who is going to be 29 this year, she was about four years old when she had her first ghost experience. And so even though I didn't have any personal experiences back then, I was open to her stories and experiences. And I think that that really helped me appreciate and respect the stories that I was hearing from these lighthouses.
0: So something I've been asked a number of times over the years, I've done presentations on New England's haunted lighthouses and people have asked, well, why are there so many lighthouse ghost stories? So it seems like if you dig deep enough in any uh, the history of any lighthouse, you're probably going to find at least one ghost story in there somewhere. Uh, Why do you think there are so many lighthouse ghost stories?
2: Well, I think in many ways, lighthouse keepers didn't just take it for the job. They were drawn to it. They were passionate about it. We saw, you know, so many keepers, particularly here in Michigan, where it was a family business, uh, where brothers and fathers and sons and even grandfathers and grandsons tended light together. Uh, they served sometimes for many decades. We have some keepers that served over forty years here in Michigan, and I think in those instances where. I see a lot of the similarities as where a keeper is haunting a light that he lived in or she lived in for a considerable period of time. And, you know, we just, I think they have this lifelong and afterlife love affair with their lighthouse to the point that they just don't ever, ever want to leave. And of course, then we also have several lighthouse keepers who died tragically. This was a... Uh, demanding job physically, mentally, emotionally, often in remote locations. And everybody thinks it's such a romantic place and a romantic Mm -hmm. job. But can you imagine? I get winded climbing a lighthouse tower once. Can you imagine doing it day in and day out, year after year after year? But it it was a job that I think that they were just born for. And if they lost their lives, whether it was in the course of the job or Natural causes. After a long, extended stay at a light, I think that they just, you know, they choose to stick around in this place that they that they love so dearly.
0: That's more or less the the same answer I give. So I, I pretty much <laughs> a, agree with what you're saying. I always say it's not that big a stretch of the imagination to me to think that a, a lighthouse keeper is so devoted to that place uh, in their life, especially when they're at one place for for a really long time, as some of them were. It's not that big a stretch of the imagination to think that, you know, even after death, that in some way they're still still connected or still still present at that place.
2: Yeah, it's, um, You know, I think it's it, it's a it's a job where you're looking out for others. You're a caregiver of that building. You're there to protect and serve. And I think people that have that natural quality in life are prone to carry that in their afterlife as well
0: right another thing I say to people sometimes is that you know even if they don't believe in, in any of this stuff at all and they're totally really close-minded to it uh, I always say the the spirits of the keepers are, are with us one way or another whether it's uh, literally or figuratively you know they're they're there exactly. In, uh- at least at least one way uh so uh some of the ghosts uh, besides uh, a lot of the stories as you say related to, that seem to point to keepers of the past uh, still being there some of the ghosts or spirits of the lighthouses seem to be related to shipwrecks uh whitefish point is one of the places where that seems to be the case uh there's some interesting stories there uh anything you'd like to say about that
2: well and i do agree you know um you have, as particularly those in Michigan that we have that I've researched, you do have those instances. I mean, these these lighthouses, while we look at them today as beautiful um, architectural structures along the lakeshore, they were built to protect the shoreline, and to protect well, to protect mariners from the shoreline, to protect mm-hmm. uh, dangerous waters and and folks that are out there, and so um, they didn't always do the job that they were supposed to do. We often have a lot of shipwrecks, Whitefish Point being one of them, shipwreck alley of Lake Superior with, you know, hundreds of shipwrecks in that area, most notably the Edmund Fitzgerald, which sank in 1975. And with so many souls lost at sea, um, again, I think that that lighthouse, uh, which most of them are automated now, uh, still draw the spirits out from those folks who lost their lives, uh, out in, in the waters near those lights. And, you know, uh, some of the folks I talked to at Whitefish Point, they can attribute, you know, dozens of spirits out there. And with so many lives lost, you can imagine that there, there are probably countless spirits, um, in that particular area, and I think that contributes a lot to the energy that we draw from these lighthouses.
0: One of the things I love about your book that makes it to me different from other books I've seen on uh, lighthouse ghost stories or haunted lighthouses, uh, that, you know, there's been quite a few of them that that uh, kind of uh, recycle or I don't know if regurgitate is a good word, but the, you <laughs> know, the same stories uh, are told over and over again. Uh, sometimes with embellishment, but a lot of times uh, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of historical research behind them. But your book has a tremendous amount of uh, historic uh, facts, and uh, you know it's not just the ghost stories. There's all the the background. Uh, related to them a lot about the lives of lighthouse keepers and their families and so forth. And I, I really appreciate that fact. And it's also a lot about, uh, recent or current preservation efforts, which is really nice too. So I, I really see it as much as a, as, uh, as much a history book as it is a book about hauntings. Was that what you set out to do in the first place?
2: It, it really was. Um, you know, when I give my presentations, I say to people, you know, even if you don't believe that's okay, because really I think only about thirty-five percent of the of the book itself is haunted based. Um, I'm a history lover. My dad is a genealogist, and so you know I have he has yet to find me a lighthouse keeper in my family tree. So um, I have to then search the family trees of these lighthouse keepers and find their stories to tell. Um, but I think it—you it, know—it's the backstory. It's the reason that the lights were built in a particular area. You know, the industry that that these communities supported, and the reason that there was so much maritime traffic. Um, The keepers and how they got into the position. You know, we had a lot of Civil War soldiers who um, were veterans and then became lighthouse keepers. And I wanted to tell their story in that regard. I wanted to tell the story of their descendants, um, some of them that became lighthouse keepers themselves or, you know, going back to Whitefish Point. Um, one of the granddaughters of the keeper, Robert Carlson, his granddaughter Bertha, she lived in that area until she was 90. She helped restore Whitefish Point. She helped it become the Shipwreck Museum campus that exists today. She donated many of her family's artifacts to the museum. So when you go through Whitefish Point and you see anything that has the Carlson name, those were donated by descendants. And I think, you know, telling all of these pieces allows for. For a personal connection today, but also helps us um, inspire the next generation of, of, of kids. You know, I think a lot of times today, uh, kids are so drawn into technology and you know VR, the virtual reality world, that they forget to look at what's here and how the how we are tied to the history of our place. And, you know, so it really gave me a great opportunity in this book to share a lot of that history. Um, And I love, you know, I'm a researcher and I love the scavenger hunt of it all. I love being able uh, to find the name of a keeper and then go back and trace their family tree or to go back and find elements of the history Uh, find out where the Fresnel lens may be, or talk about those restoration projects, because it's so important that we keep these lights around for future generations so that they can enjoy them as much as we do.
0: I totally agree. Another thing I I love about your book is that you have lots of accounts of people's personal encounters with spirits at lighthouses, uh, which really adds a a lot to the book, I think. I'm wondering, how, how did you get so many people to share their stories?
2: Well, it's funny because a couple of them were personal friends who as I was telling them about my book, they're like, "Oh, I've got a story to tell for you." Hmm. And so I didn't even have to ask. They were, you know, totally open to to sharing those with me. And then in doing some online research, um, you know, finding other people's accounts, I didn't really just want to regurgitate stories, as you mentioned before, but, um, you know, Michigan has about 70 paranormal groups. And Mm -hmm. so if I saw that a group did an investigation, I would go and I would listen to their audio recordings. I would send them follow up questions, ask them things and. One of the groups that I connected with, which is um, in the Upper Peninsula, the UP Paranormal Group, they run a big paranormal uh, conference in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, every August. And we've become friends because of this. And they've written a couple books and they have a radio show. So I've been on their show and we've been out for drinks before. And we always go out for drinks in a bar that's haunted because, you know, (laughs) why would you not? And uh, so it's actually created this great um, friendship. Through that, and also with other authors that I've befriended through this process, a friend of uh, become a friend who opened up a bookstore in Lansing, Michigan, dedicated to haunted, uh, paranormal, true crime. That's all the books she sells. So, you're not going to find Danielle Steele in her bookstore. Um, but you're gonna find a lot of haunted stuff, and it, and it's created. You know, it's it's almost like this fraternity or sorority of people, and and as you know, if you like to talk about ghost stories, you will share those stories with anyone, and I think that's really been you know part of um, the joy of working on this because it's not just my. Telling of stories, it's telling other people's stories that that gives me the happiness in this.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it shows in the book, and you just sort of make me think about all the times I've done lectures on this subject, and when I finish, somebody will come up to me and, and quietly say, "You know, I had an experience," and they'll, they'll tell me all about it. And another thing is that I've I've interviewed a lot of ex lighthouse keepers, and sometimes I'll ask about that if a place is you know is not kind of known for that type of thing, but. Usually I won't ask them, you know, if they had any strange experiences uh, at the lighthouse, but a number of times they've told me anyway, you know, like one, one, uh, ex lighthouse keeper from Newfoundland, I was talking to, I was, I thought we were about to hang up and he said, do you want to hear the ghost story? And uh, I said, <laughs> I said, sure. And it turned out to be a ghost ship story. It was really, really interesting. But, um, but that's happened other times too. So people do want to share those stories if they've had a vivid experience, you know, for the most part, it seems like they want to tell somebody.
2: Yes. Uh, And, and, you know, even when I give my presentations, it's the same thing. People come up afterward and tell you, and they do that about lighthouses in general. I actually, um, you know, have been giving virtual programs and people always want to tell you about their favorite lighthouse and the experiences that they've had, whether they're haunted experiences or not. And um, I think that's one of the things about, lighthouses in general is, you know, people just are drawn to other people that enjoy the beauty and the history of the lights.
0: Oh, this is true. Yeah. There's definitely a, a community of, of lighthouse lovers that you and I are, are part of. I feel lucky to be a part of that. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering of all the the great stories in the book, and there's a, a, lot of, a lot of juicy ones in there, but is there one particular story that's especially compelling to you that really stands out?
2: Well, you know, it was interesting. Um, There are actually about 130 lights in Michigan, and about 40 or 50 of them are haunted or have some type of story. And I had to pick which ones, which was great with my publisher. They let me pick. And I picked 13, right? Because if you're going to talk haunted things, that's the most logical number of chapters (laughs) to have, right? Well, Um, I was born on
0: a Friday the 13th, so I don't think it's an unlucky number. (laughs)
2: So you understand the draw for that, right? Yes. Um, so that was, you know, kind of how I nailed that down. But one of the ones I think that sticks out to me was one of the first lights that I actually "quote unquote" investigated, and it was before I'd ever done anything. You know, I've been on paranormal investigations now off and on, but um, gosh. Right around 2004, I think it was. Uh, I went out to South Manitou Island, which is an, uh, now an uninhabited island. It's a rustic island uh, owned in, uh, by the National Park, part of Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. And I had given a couple presentations in in the village of Empire uh, for the Manitou Memorial Society, which kind of. Maintains the historical structures on both North and South Manitou Island. And I said, okay, you know, I'll come up and I'll give these presentations, but here's the trade off. I want to go to South Manitou Island and go and see the lighthouse, and it's a place I've never been. Well, they rolled out the red carpet and they allowed me to stay in the coast guard building, uh, for a couple of nights, which was great. Cause it had a bed and, uh, power and a bathroom and the rest of the Island is all rustic. I mean, you, it, it's all rustic camping. And so, um, at the end of the day, when the boat went back with all the day trippers, the park ranger tossed me the keys to the lighthouse and said, lock it up when you're done. Mm-hmm. And, I just was overwhelmed. So, um, my friend and I that were there, we, uh, kind of, uh, had a little dinner and then toward the end, it was in the summer. So toward the end of the day, I don't know, around eight or nine o'clock, we made our way to the light and sunset, you know, was just before 10. And so we, we had heard stories about the ghosts there mostly in the um the breezeway or the causeway that connects the tower to the light and the tower was open to the public to climb but you can't even today you can't go through the house part yet so we thought well we're going to go through and we're going to see if we can have any kind of experience so we walk and we sit on the first landing we sit there about a half an hour And then we kind of make our way up. And we, I think there were three landings until we got to the top uh, of the tower and we sat there and we waited and we listened and, and we never had any real experience. We never really heard anything, but when we got to the top, we got to watch the sunset and the moon came out and it was a full moon. It was actually the end of July. It was a blue moon. So the second full moon of the month. And I kept thinking, you know, it's, it's a blue moon. It's the sunset. There's gotta be a ghostly encounter going on somewhere tonight. Right. And we even consumed at least one, but probably two bottles of wine during that excursion. (laughs) And still we did not have a ghost encounter. Uh, but that was, I think the first time that I actively went out searching or listening Uh, for ghost experiences. And I think even though I'd been telling the stories for 10 years at that point, I didn't go out and actually seek these experiences out. That was the very first one. And I think that's one of the reasons that that one sticks out. And then the story around the ghost there is it's believed to be members of the Sheridan family, the mother and father and a a nine month old baby of theirs drowned when they were coming back uh, from the mainland in a boat in March of 1878. And they all lost their lives that day. But I'm also friends with some of the descendants of that family. And I think that that's another reason that, you know, people ask you what your favorite lighthouse is. And I tell them, you can't ask that. It's like asking your fa- who your favorite child is, right? Yeah. And I, and I give that disclaimer, but then I almost always say it's South Manitou Island.
0: <laughs> I say exactly the same thing when people ask me what my favorite lighthouse is, but then I end up saying Portland Headlight in Maine. So
2: <laughs> You have to have that disclaimer just so that none of the other lights get upset with
0: you. Exactly, exactly. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so uh, one of the other chapters in the book that I really th- thought was extremely interesting was the one on Wagoshant's light, which I... if. Do I remember right that people, uh, local people call it Wobbly Shanks? Is that right?
2: They do call it Wobbly Shanks. And <laughs> I it's, love it. that. it's more wobbly now than ever before, let me tell yes, you. Yes,
0: it sure is. Speaking of ghostly, it looks pretty ghostly itself these days, the lighthouse. Wagga light on Lake Michigan. So there were multiple tragedies at that lighthouse. But the story that I found especially interesting was about that one guy who uh, disappeared and they believed he died.
2: Well, this is another interesting one. This is one of the probably the one of the earliest ghost stories I ever heard about Lake Michigan Lights. And uh, John Herman was the keeper. And I had always been told uh, this local legend was that um, on October 14th of 1900, that uh, the John Herman, who loved two things, he loved a good stiff drink and a good practical joke that he returned from a tavern in Mackinac city and thought it would be funny to lock his assistant keeper in the tower. Mm-hmm. Now this is a beautiful lighthouse or was back in the day. Uh, I believe it to be the only birdcage, uh, lantern in Michigan at the time. And so he locks his assistant keeper and you can almost vision the assistant keeper running up the spiral staircase and coming out the top of that bird cage lantern room and yelling out at John Herman below saying, this is not funny. Hmm. This is not a joke. Let me out of here. Yep. Well, two hours later, the guy's still up there. And you can imagine he's just livid at this point. And I'm sure he's yelling more, uh, more ex- expletives out to John Herman below. Um, but John Herman never unlocks the door. Well, after a little bit of time after that, the assistant sends a distress call to what I assume is McGulpin Point Light in Mackinac City. It's the nearest lighthouse um, and not very far by land. So that assistant comes over, unlocks the door, and that assistant keeper is ready to wring John Herman's neck, right? As you would imagine. Well, they go looking and looking and looking and they never find him. And he's never seen again. And they believe, as the legend was told to me over 20 years ago, that in his drunken stupor, John Herman fell over the edge and drowned and his body just washed away. Well, over the course of the next 10 years, this became one of the hardest lighthouses to find a staff to work because it was so haunted, they say, that no man would accept the position. Uh, silverware would rattle, doors would open, just all of these strange things. And everybody always attributed them to John Herman. And the local legend is that that's why they decommissioned the lighthouse in 1910. In actuality, they had built white shoal, which is the beautiful candy cane stripe or the barber pole stripe light that we have in the Straits of Mackinac. And Wagachance became an unnecessary light at that point. Um, but over the years, the legend and the story continued to grow. And um, I, of years ago, uh, met Chris West, who has the Waukeshaans Historical Preservation Society, and he told me all kinds of ghost stories. Another friend of mine, George Schulender, told me about some of his ghost stories, and it just kept going on and on. Well, as I was doing the final research, um, I was enlisting the help of my dad, a genealogist, and I had given him a list of all the lighthouses and the keepers that I knew and the deaths, and he was helping me track down... Um, uh, burial sites, you know, cemeteries, death records, newspaper articles, whatever we could find to help tell these stories. And, you know, I had told him a little bit about what I knew of each of these keepers. Well, he emails me back and he says, I have an interesting lead on that keeper, the drunk one who fell over the edge of the lighthouse. And I said, oh, you have some information about John Herman. This is great. He goes, he didn't fall over the edge and drown. He died of a heart attack on Mackinac Island. I have his death certificate. Well, it's interesting because clearly he didn't lock anybody in the lantern room on the night of uh, October 14th of 1900 because he died at 1.30 that afternoon. Hmm. However, imagine this. Maybe that keeper, assistant keeper was locked in the tower and the reason they never found a body was because it was not a human that locked it in there. Uh-huh. Maybe it was John Herman's ghost that did it.
0: Holy cow.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, that would expo- that would answer a lot of questions about why they never saw him again. Right. So. I don't know. That to me was one of those big aha moments. And, uh, but the date was right. The date that, that was always told to me was October 14th of 1900. That's the day he died. He had a heart attack for three or four days prior to that while he was on Mackinac Island, but he died at one, his death certificate is dated one 30 in the afternoon on the 14th.
0: Wow. Seems like there's a, a movie uh, possibility there.
2: <laughs> exactly. And it's sad to say Wagashant is um, number one on the doomsday list in Michigan. It is uh, the lake high water levels. Um, of course, okay. the Straits of Mackinac freeze a lot. Uh, and it's it's honestly, if that thing is still standing in five years, I will be quite surprised. Um, they've talked about trying to stabilize it. But the cost, as you know, to do such things is in the uh, is in millions Yep. And it's in a state of disrepair to begin with, so I'm 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 fearful that we will lose this one uh, yeah. sooner, sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. And also, I saw recently, I believe the the organization that was trying to work to save it has kind of uh, folded or given up on on that project. And I don't blame them one bit. It's uh, seems like a, I'm afraid it's kind of a lost cause at this point.
2: Yeah, and another interesting story about it, real quick, is that it was used for bombing practice during World War II. Mm.
3: After Didn't it was, help it <laughs> No,
2: after it was decommissioned, um, they did bombing runs up in that part of, of the straits and they, there's some YouTube videos. If you look for it, you can find them. And mm-hmm. it did hit the target. It caused all, you know, everything that would burn did burn and it does look bad, but the thing is 150 years old, uh, yeah. or more. And, um, so the fact that anything is still there is, is tells you how strong those things were built for sure. Yeah.
0: With no maintenance in a very long time. Yes. Um, yeah. Another uh, chapter in the book that is, is very interesting is – well, they're all interesting, but the uh, the one in the old Presque Isle – or Presque Isle. I always get mixed up as which one is Presque Isle and which one is Presque Isle. Okay. I, so you and so me both. The, the county, I believe, is pronounced differently than the lighthouse. Is that is that correct?
2: Yes. And then there's an, there, and there's like three different Presque Isle, Presque Isle within right. the Great Lakes region. So who knows yep. what you'd say. I didn't take French, so I can't <laughs> say any of them.
0: Yeah. I th- do they say Presque Lighthouse, or
2: um, they? They it's kind of intermixed. Um, <laughs> okay, depending on who you talk to.
0: Well, I, I hope nobody uh, calls and or <laughs> emails me and complains about this. But <laughs> anyway, that lighthouse, you know which one we're talking about, uh, yes. Presque or Presque Isle on Lake Huron. <laughs> Uh, many people believe uh, the spirit of a former caretaker. It was, you know, relatively recent uh, is seen there, and I've seen things about this on TV. Uh, I think once or twice before too. Uh, the one of the odd things about it is that there's no light in the lighthouse. It was deactivated a long time ago, but people r- have reported a number of times seeing a light uh, where there should be no light. And uh, I remember at one point, it might have been one of those TV shows I saw a long time ago where they supposedly somebody came up with an explanation that was some sort of reflection or something. But other other people said that's ridiculous. That's not the case at all. So what's what's your view on all that? Is there a light where there should be no light there?
2: Well, that's a very interesting one. And I think you and I watched the same documentary eons ago because mm-hmm. I do remember that where they talked about it and and this light was deactivated it only operated for about 30 years and they built a new taller light about a mile up the uh, peninsula um, and then ended up removing all of the lens and all the mechanics and in fact at one point the entire top of the lantern room was removed and during this time ships traveling through this area would report back that they would see the light and and that's not a good thing because if you're you know on a freighter or another ship traveling knowing where the lights are you're knowing the signal of the light and that helps with your navigation so if you throw an extra light in the mix it can throw you off course and so they were getting reports from from ships that they were seeing this and then people in town were reporting that they could see the light shining also from the marina well uh over time they did all of these things you know kind of like mythbusters they went out and debunked the theories the theory was it was a reflection well at that point when that story came out the the lantern room had been rebuilt and so there was glass and they thought well maybe some light somewhere else is reflecting off the glass mm-hmm. well they went up and they covered the entire exterior of that uh lantern room glass with those heavy um wool green army blankets Mm-hmm. So, there was no way it could be a reflection. They did all of these things to disprove that it was there. Well, the thing is, um, the, the gentleman you were referring to, his name was George Parrish, and he and his wife Lorraine were caretakers in the 70s, 80s, and until George died in the early 90s, they ran the museum and the gift shop and, and everything. And after he died, was when all of these things started to happen. And there are countless stories from from Lorraine about... Uh, about George. And she just thinks that a lot of it was, you know, him there taking care of her after he passed away. And then he just became so used to it that those things happen still to this day. Mm -hmm. So in, um, in September of 2019, I was in the community giving my presentation tied to my book. I had about a hundred people out. Um, and afterward we went and took a tour of the light after dark. But during the presentation, I asked everybody, how many of you here have seen the light shining out at Old Presque And probably 80% of the hands went up. I said, how many of you have seen it more than once? At least half. Mm -hmm. So people in the community have seen it regularly. I drove back and forth down that road a couple times that night hoping to see it, and I did not, even walking around. The grounds, I didn't have any experience. Um, But I also met members of the Garrity family and they were the last keepers at that light when it was decommissioned. And they actually think that there is another spirit there of uh, Patrick Garrity, who was the patriarch of that family. So there may be more than one there. Um, Mm -hmm. and actually there's a, there's probably at least three, because we heard of another gentleman, um, who was friends of the, the owner in the 1930s and a medium that I met in another event told me, um, about that experience that she had. And at a presentation of mine, once a woman came up to me and she said that you showed the picture of the owner's friend in the thirties. She said, that's the guy I remember. She said, one day I toured there when i was in high school because we had a family cottage nearby and i misstepped and almost fell backwards out of the light down the light stairs and she said i felt two hands on my back push me forward to save me and when i turned around that's the man i saw Mm. so i mean they just give you goosebumps when people tell you these personal stories
0: absolutely yeah for sure. Uh, so uh, another chapter in the book is about Big Bay Point Lighthouse, which is a B&B, has been for, I think, uh, 30 years or more. Nick Korstad, the present owner, is a, a friend of mine. I'll say more about him in a minute. But you you stayed at Big Bay Point B&B yourself. Did you have any personal experiences there?
2: I, it was a long time ago. It was actually uh, previous owners. I've not yet met Nick in person, uh, but I did stay there. I'd actually been speaking in Marquette nearby and and took the long drive out to Big Bay. And I got there um, and I sat in the library area and read the ghost stories. And let me tell you, don't do that <laughs> before you go to bed. Yeah, um, Because I literally, I didn't sleep all night because I laid there all night with one eye open. Mm-hmm. waiting for that ghost of, of, uh, Captain, um, uh, prior to right. come and visit me. He did not, but I kept waiting for it. And I think now if I go back, I'm all very well aware. I don't think I'll be as concerned about, uh, having an encounter, um, there, but, um, a, f- a classmate of mine from high school, his mother stayed there and she has a story in the book where she talks about how her and her husband stayed there on their honeymoon. And she uh, had several experiences that happened to her while they were staying there. So that Mm -hmm. was another one that she kept, she saw I was working on the book when I was posting about it on Facebook. And she kept messaging me going, I have to talk to you. I have to talk to you. I have to talk to you. And we sat down and had coffee and she shared this story. And uh, boy, it was, I don't think you really want that kind of um, attention on your honeymoon from
0: a go- no. In your room. No, so not, was, not really.
2: But, uh, you know, countless people have had had experiences. It was great. When I wrote the book, uh, Nick had just purchased The Bed and Breakfast. Right. And I reached out to him and said, you know, hey, I'm working on this book. Do you know you bought a haunted lighthouse? Have you had any experiences? And he, he was very quick to reply back. Very nice. He goes, I've been here nine or 10 days. I haven't had any experiences yet, but I hear. Perhaps he has had some sense.
0: Yeah. Well, the key word there is yet, because uh, as I said, I just uh, interviewed him yesterday and people are going to hear him right after uh, the interview with you here. Uh, and he may have had a visit from Captain Pryor. So I don't want to give uh, no, no spoilers. here. I don't want to give too much, too much well, away here. But... I
2: tell you what, I am. Ex- I'm very interested to hear um, that interview with him mm-hmm. and to hear his experience. Uh, Captain Pryor has quite a tragic story. Uh, out there, lost his son um, who died of a gangrene infection in his leg. And and then he ended up taking his own life. Um, But uh, the uh, prior family was one of the ones. And one of the things I just want to mention is um, when I was doing a lot of this research, it was very important to me um, to pay my respects to these keepers. And so in any opportunity that I had, I would go visit the cemetery where these keepers were buried. Thank them for their service. Thank them for allowing me to tell their stories. Um, William Pryor uh, is not buried in the cemetery in Marquette with the rest of his family because he committed suicide and he was Catholic. So such a thing would not be allowed in a Catholic cemetery. But I did have the opportunity to go and, and uh, pay my respects to his family uh, at the cemetery there in Marquette. And I think that that to me, you know, I'm a a cemetery, uh, what they call a tombstone tourist as Mm -hmm. well. And it just, to me, it's part of that story of the history and the legacy uh, is is paying the respects to those keepers.
0: Right. I agree with you there, too. Uh, So uh, have you had any other personal experiences uh, along these lines?
2: Well, it's interesting. In all the book, they're all everybody else's stories, even though I've tried my darndest to have an account. Um, it wasn't until after the book was turned into the publisher, my boyfriend and I had gone um, to Fort Gratiot, which is in Port Huron. It's actually Michigan's oldest lighthouse dating back to the 1820s. It's actually older than the state of Michigan itself. And they have a, uh, a paranormal group in town that has a relationship with the lighthouse and they do tours for the public. So you pay to go in and you're there for six hours and they you go to different stations. You start in the keepers residence. And you go to the fog signal building and they have an old hospital from Fort at there. And then our group ended in the tower. Um, right from the get go, there things were strange. Not so much on my account, but um, I don't know. My boyfriend seems to draw more of the ghostly uh, encounters than I do. Uh, mm-hmm. But we, you know, when you get to a lighthouse, the first thing you do is you take a picture of the lighthouse, right? So I take pictures. It's kind of a Drizzly uh, gray night. I take a picture. Every picture he took was upside down on his phone. Mm. All, all the pictures before were the right way. All the pictures after were the right way. But the two or three that he took of the tower itself were upside down. Huh. That was. We didn't look at them until like later that night, but. So that was a weird thing. We had some weird and interesting flashlight activity. When you go with the paranormal group, it's really fascinating because they have spirit boxes and all the gadgets that you yep. see on TV. And so we had, you know, like the divining rods. We had um, thermometers to do temperature gauging, and and so we had picked up a lot of that. We had I have video of flashlights coming off and on with questions when you'd ask questions and whatnot. Yep. So that was one we drew a lot of energy out of, and at the very end uh, we were in the tower and interestingly enough I don't climb lighthouse towers anymore uh, I have a fear of heights and a bad knee and the biggest fear I have is climbing to the top and then having to be removed by ambulance or mm. you know in some kind of uh, breeches buoy getting me out of the top of it or something right. so I just I don't do it and so my boyfriend that's Part of our relationship agreement is he goes to the top of the tower and takes the pictures, right? So the next day we're looking at our photos, and he had taken a picture of the top at uh, Fort Gratiot, looking down the tower. And then the next picture he has, he's at the base of the tower, kind of, kind of next to the um, the spiral pole that holds the stairs up, and he takes this picture. It shows. The shadow of the spiral stairs and part of that beam, it shows the brick wall and the window, but also in the picture, it is showing the lights in the fog signal building outside, grass, the sidewalk, the lamp posts in the park that surround this lighthouse. So the picture is inside and outside the tower at the same time. Hmm it's like, if you put it on high def, we we blew it up on the TV. We're looking at it. We, I mean, we've, we've sent this to several paranormal groups. They can't explain how you would get a picture of inside and outside. And in certain definition television or projection systems, you can also see his shoulder his hand and the outline of his phone. So it's almost like someone took a picture of him taking the picture and it shows inside. So there's so many elements in this picture. And if we were shooting film, you could go, Oh, Hey, maybe it was a double exposure, but you would have had to have been in the exact same location outside the tower. Because if you line it up, the lights in the fog signal building were right where the fog signal building was on the other side of the brick tower. Yeah. It's the craziest picture ever, <laughs> ever. and still to that this is, day. And yeah. I'm so bummed because this was all after the book came out, so right. none of it's in the book. So when people, it's, it's a bonus for people that come and li- listen to the presentation, I guess.
0: Okay, well, I've run into some pretty pretty crazy photos at, at uh, some New England lighthouses too. So. Uh, that can't be explained in an easy way. So I have a very, very open mind about such things. Uh, So uh, talking about, you just mentioned how you, you know, maybe some things came too late to get into Michigan's haunted lighthouses into that book, but I understand you're working on a new book that sounds extremely interesting. Can you tell me about that?
2: Well, yes, this one. um, So I have a fascination with the dark side or what we call dark tourism and uh, true crime is another fascination for me. I'm a, I'm a, Broadcast and print journalism, so uh, major. So I have a lot of news background and, and interest in true crime, and so I started to look at lighthouses not just in Michigan but in the Great Lakes region, where keepers uh, have died, not just a uh, shipwreck while out uh, coming back from from one area to another, but keepers who. Um, Died in tragic situations, uh, potentially murdered, perhaps suicide, uh, perhaps unknown uh, tragic deaths. Um, So the book is Death and Lighthouses of the Great Lakes, A History of Misfortune and Murder. Uh, It's due out in March of next year from the History Press. And uh, for example, we went to South Bass Island, put in bay um, last year, and the South Bass Island lighthouse had three keepers that died during its history, or two keepers and an assistant caretaker. The assistant caretaker apparently uh, jumped to his death off the cliff, committing suicide during a smallpox scare during the Early, uh, late 1800s. They have another keeper um, who, the main keeper at that point, went mad and was found wandering the streets uh, of the mainland, taken to an asylum where he later died uh, of syphilis of the brain. And uh, then another keeper, many years later, fell off the edge of the cliff and died. Which is interesting to me because if he'd been the keeper for many years there, he clearly knew the dangers of the cliff and why he was walking so near the edge after dark was a bit of a a mystery to me. Uh, But we have other ones where, uh, for example, uh, Sandpoint Lighthouse in Escanaba in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Mary Terry was the keeper for 18 years and she died in a mysterious fire. And there has been speculation over the years that she was murdered and the fire started to make it look like she died an accidental death. Mm. This one is, is, uh, got a little bit of a dark side, but it allows me to still do the genealogical research. I use newspapers.com for a lot of the articles. I find some very interesting articles, uh, about many of these tragedies, Grand Island up in Lake Superior is another example of that. So it will be a little darker, no ghost stories, but, um, Definitely a lot of murder and death in this particular (laughs) title.
0: Yeah. Well, it also sounds like there'll be plenty of history in it as well, uh, like the uh, the Haunted Lighthouses book, which is great. You know, and again, I want to say that anybody uh, who's interested in lighthouses should get Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses because, like you said, it's only maybe 35% or something like that ghost stories. And uh, they're entertaining even if people don't believe in them, but the, the history is, is just so great too. So uh, are there any other books you have in the pipeline related to these subjects
2: So the History Press last year launched a new division. It's called the Spooky America Series. Mm -hmm. And this is meant for young readers, so probably third, fourth, maybe fifth grade readers. And they are taking some of their existing titles, and they have a a writer that takes the stories and puts them more into young reader style. And so Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses is uh, coming out in April. May of this year as one of the Spooky America series books. So that's going to be exciting. Um, You know, I find even, even though mine is dealing with haunted stories, uh, a lot of people buy it and read it to their children, which I find quite interesting and I I love it. Um, Hmm. The kids are fascinated with this. Um, But so this next book will be a companion and um, it'll be uh, available and i think really opening up um some new eyes uh to that and then um i think probably after that i'm going to divert my attention to a couple other themes um Lighthouses are just one of the things I'm fascinated with. I mentioned cemeteries earlier, but I'm also drawn uh, to covered bridges and I'm drawn to historic other historic sites. So I have uh, four or five other titles uh, that I'll probably try to work my way down and uh, broaden some of my my outreach um, and uh, just to continue to work with the history press as they seem to be open to the, the subject matter that I am interested in as well.
0: Right. I don't know if I mentioned to you that I wrote a book for History Press about 10 years ago that uh, relates to a ghost story about Oceanborn Mary, a very famous legend in New Hampshire.
2: Well, I have to read it. I'm very intrigued. We're actually making our first trip to the New England area in August, Um, Mm -hmm. a a very interesting tour that will culminate in Salem um, and uh, involve a lot of research on the witch trials. But Mm -hmm. along the way, we will be visiting um, the grave of Edgar Allan Poe, and we will be visiting the grave of H.H. H. Holmes, uh, the serial killer uh, from the uh, from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will be uh, staying at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. Oh,
0: boy. Yeah.
2: So um, we, we have quite a tour planned of... Uh, a very, it, it's a very dark sided tour. Um, but uh, it was supposed to happen last year. We had to postpone it a year, but very much looking forward to it. And, you know, I think all these things just keep history alive and, Absolutely. um, give you exciting ways to share stories. And I'm always uh, interested in learning new things and I go down a lot of rabbit holes quite frequently. So, uh, we'll see what the next one brings.
0: Yeah, well, it's all all good stuff. Uh, again, when is the uh, the young readers version of the the haunted lighthouses book coming out?
2: That should be out um, in May of this year. Okay, and then the murder book will be out in March of twenty two.
0: Okay. Uh, people are going to be hearing this on May 12th, or this this episode of the podcast will be released on, on May 12th. So the timing is probably pretty good there that the that children's version will be coming out probably just, just after that, maybe?
2: Uh, hopefully before that, but before I'm, that, still, okay. I'm still waiting. Uh, they'll be sending me a case of those. And um, so I'll have that as well as my own book, available on uh on my website so people can buy it direct and get an autographed copy. Um and that is available at mihauntedlighthouses.com.
0: That's your website. Yes. Right.
2: It's mihauntedlighthouses.com okay. and I encourage people no matter where they're buying a book to really try to um, either buy direct from the author or from a local independent bookstore, um, I think you know it's very important to keep our local uh, bookstores in operation um, and uh, keep these small businesses going. And uh, so I always encourage people to to shop local.
0: Yeah, well, I I agree with that. That's that's a good point. I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. okay. So. The question is, what was your, and maybe to some extent you've already answered this, you've talked about a lot of enjoyable aspects to it, but what was your favorite part about writing Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses?
2: I think a lot of it is is digging in a little more into the history. I mean, I, I casually have known these stories for years, but this really forced me to dig in deeper, to not... Just take the legend that I've heard before as reality. Um, so, so, searching for the sources that create these, I guess, fact from fiction, and that's also something that I'm finding very much in the new book um, because this one is Great Lakes based, and so it's allowing me to research lights that are new to me. Many of the lights are not in Michigan, and you know, so taking that trip to South Bass Island was was great because it was all new, and and you just get you know, this excitement of, of researching something new and having new encounters. So I think for me, it, it, it's that treasure hunt, that, that scavenger hunt, that find of, of looking for the information that I find most enjoyable.
0: Well, uh, you know, it's, uh, to everybody's benefit that you, uh, did the, that scavenger hunt or all those scavenger hunts and put the, uh, the book together because I, again, I, I very highly recommend it, uh, for anybody, Interested in lighthouses, period. Uh, again, it's a it's a great collection of stories, ghost stories and uh, just history, lives of keepers and so forth. So it gets my recommendation. So uh, Diana Stamfler, I want to thank you so much for, for being with me today. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, there's probably plenty more we could talk about and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime.
2: I would love to share more stories with you. And again, very much looking forward to listening to Nick's interview um,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: that once you get that posted online as well.
0: Well, yeah, I think you'll, you'll enjoy that a lot and everybody else will too. So thank you so much, Diana. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you.
1: Michigan's Big Bay Point Lighthouse stands on a high bluff on the state's Upper Peninsula, about 24 miles northwest of Marquette on Lake Superior. The light was deactivated in 1961 and the property was sold into private ownership.
0: Later owners turned the lighthouse into a Bed and Breakfast Inn in 1986. The new owner since May 2018 is Nick Korstad. Before he bought Big Bay Point Lighthouse, Nick bought and restored Borden Flats Lighthouse in Fall River, Massachusetts, a project for which he was featured on several national TV shows and received a Keeper of the Light Award from the American Lighthouse Foundation.
1: In the interview you're about to hear, Nick talks about an unusual experience at Big Bay Point Lighthouse, and he also discusses strange happenings at Borden Flats Lighthouse.
0: So let's listen to my conversation with Nick Korstad now. I am speaking with my good friend Nick Korstad uh, from Big Bay Point Lighthouse in Michigan and uh, Nick has been on the podcast before and will be again, absolutely, but uh, today we're going to be talking about a very specific subject. But anyway, thank you so much for being with me today, Nick. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me on. So again, I, I do want to have you back on the podcast again to talk about all the exciting things that are happening at, at Big Bay Point there. I know uh, we've actually been chatting before we, we started the interview here about um, how you're uh, doing uh, exciting things related to the the optic in your lighthouse and. There's a bunch of projects going on, maybe expanding the, the uh, operation into other buildings uh, there as well, you were talking about. So it's it's all very interesting, exciting, and I know people like to hear about it. But today, uh, we're talking actually the day before, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Diana Stampler, who's written Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses. So I thought I should talk to you because she she said that when she was writing the book, she contacted you and you had not bought that lighthouse much before that. And that you didn't have any experiences yet there. Uh, But I contacted you and you said you did have an experience since then. So we're going to get into that in a a couple of minutes here. But before we do that, I want to mention that you and I have some history with the Borden Flats lighthouse that you used to own in Fall River, Mass. And certainly you have some stories about that place. And we maybe have a, a story or two that we we share as, as well, uh, but uh, can you say a little bit about uh, maybe a couple of things that happened that were interesting at Borden Flats Lighthouse?
3: Yeah, Borden Flats was probably the most haunted lighthouse I, I can say that I've experienced. Uh, but from the beginning of uh, you know taking over ownership, uh, there was a spirit there. Uh, John Paul, one of the the head lighthouse keepers, and uh, he did a great job of you know communicating through mediums you know the ability to help me keep birds off the lighthouse and to this day the new owner they don't have any issues with any birds or anything landing I remember the event when you came out I think it was in 2012 and uh, we were sitting down and there was a spirit box in front of us and we saw a bright flash of light go by and uh you know through the box it said you know protect your property and uh we had no idea what it meant to you know it always kind of creeps you out when something like that says it's like you know it's You know, a hurricane coming or you know, what's gonna happen? And uh I had to hosted another event uh that was uh probably two years afterwards. And uh I dropped the whole crew off. And part of uh the agreement with the spirits that we had was that they were not any anywhere around when I was there. They were supposed to be quiet. So that was that was good for me. And so uh I dropped everyone off. I went home, I was watching something on TV and I get a call back and uh the medium was frantic that I get back out there and I picked this one lady up off the lighthouse. And so I, I zip out there and she was uh, right there at the steps waiting to get off. And I was you know, curious, you know, what, what would you experience? And she had i uh, I'm not sure what the device is, but it's kind of what you hold up. If you're trying to listen to a, a conversation in a different room, is kind of a clear large microphone that you hold in your hand. Hmm. And uh, a voice came on and said, you're not allowed to be here without Nick. And that was it. She was like, she didn't want anything to do with it at that point. And so I took her back to shore. And uh, while I was out there, everyone was like, well, what's going on? All the activity has stopped. And uh, the medium's like, well, Nick's here. They're not allowed to be visible. And so she had set up cameras on every level, and all the lights were off Is those static night vision cameras. And I said, all right, spirits, you can come out. And uh, orb came out of the basement and you know me i'm kind of skeptical i thought you know it's just a fly or something like that and it kind of circled around the room but then it went upstairs and it circled around the people that were upstairs and then it blew up into about 40 different balls of light and they started spiraling around at the same speed at which the rotating beacon at the top was turning and i was like all right i gotta go (laughs) Uh so i left and came back and you know everyone was all excited and you know they had their experiences but you know that type of stuff, it, it always concerns me because you just, you see these ghost hunter shows and stuff. And it seems these people kind of always, you don't want it to follow you back to your home and control <laughs> your life. And so.
0: No, that's not good.
3: You know, I, I'm i there. I see it. I experience it. But I don't hunt for it because, you yeah, know, yeah. you may have seen some friends of yours maybe that have kind of gotten a little bit darker that chase this stuff. And you just, you know, you know,
0: I don't know anything about it. And I don't know if I really want to know it too much yeah no, I, I i agree that we we don't totally know what we're dealing with i don't know you know i have an open mind about these things i don't necessarily think that it's spirits of the dead although it might be but i don't think i don't think we know for sure what's going yeah. on with it uh but there's some you know i know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's something to a lot of these stories but well um, going, going to a
3: side note just super quick is you know when I lived with my parents. We had a new house in the nineties and I woke up and there was a figure from the 1800s standing next to my bed and I couldn't explain it. And I, years had gone by and my friend had to, you know, a, a sensitive, my mom had a friend over that was sensitive. She said, you know, there's this guy with a top hat in your house and he wants to kill you. And since then my mom had all these experiences and she had to call someone and like, it was the weirdest situation. So I was like, okay, I don't know. This is just weird stuff. So, yeah. That's why I don't try and mess with it, because <laughs> <Yeah>. it's weird. <laughs> yeah, because
0: yeah, I remember you telling that to me before, but uh, wow. Um, just a uh, little bit more about Borden Flats. You, uh remember you told me that you had some experiences with what seemed to be a, like a little girl's voice saying things to yeah. you uh, when you were doing work and that kind of thing. So when we first
3: opened the building
0: up, and, you know, I had been kind of closed for many years.
3: You know, we started scraping paint and it's, it's almost, you know, when you start making noises and stuff, it just opens the spirit box up and uh, my brother he he was out there and you know that was in the day that we're using the inflatable kayak going back and forth you know and we came down the stairs and this girl walks in the front door and was giggling and said those colors are really cute and just went right up the stairway as if we weren't there and my mom and I looked at each other and we're like okay that's that's odd and so I had kayaked back to shore to grab something and I came back out my brother you know he was just like we gotta go we gotta get off this thing and he was painting outside and got so sidetracked because someone came up and hummed in his ear that the wind caught his paint tray, flipped it over onto the concrete. And that oil based paint to this day is still splattered everywhere on the concrete. And so uh, he is completely, he doesn't believe in any of this stuff, but he's like, I don't know what I experienced there. I don't ever want to experience it again. I don't ever want to go back. And uh, at the same trip, when he was there, we had a fog detector in one of the windows and I needed to move it to put a real window in. And when we disconnected it, on the floor above, sounded like a 400-pound person stampeding that they were so upset that we had disconnected the foghorn. Mm-hmm. And we put it back together. And the second I connected that power cable, all the sound stopped. And the Coast Guard in 2014 took the foghorn away because it kept firing all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, a medium can I said, oh, John Paul is very, very mad that they took his foghorn away. And so it's just, it's weird. It's just, you know, it's, it's really hard to explain, you know, they don't come out and, you know, I know I was in Oregon cause I used to go to Oregon during the winter and I heard some footsteps at my mom's house and my mom's friend said, oh, that's the lighthouse keeper. He's wondering why you haven't been out there in a while. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. <laughs> so the new owner, he gets to deal with all those fun challenges.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just, to, uh, just one other quick thing about Borden Flats. You mentioned the time uh, we had the investigation there, and I was there for that. Uh, I can't believe that was nine years ago. Wow. It's yeah, just incredible. Time goes by. But um, we're there with uh, Ron Kollek and New England Ghost Project and uh, Leslie Martin, Medium. And I remember Leslie, and I think also Karen, uh, another uh, sp- person who seemed to be very sensitive to things, um, drew pictures of a a face that looked uh, without knowing anything about the place going in, they drew pictures of a a man's face that looked a lot like John Paul, the keeper you're talking about. And uh, I know Leslie felt very strongly that his his presence was there. uh, So that it all, it all fit together pretty well.
3: No, they tied it together very well. And, you know, not having been, you know, any vision before they went out there they wanted to go out there sight unseen you know they, they had no idea where they were going and they showed up remember it was in the dark so they had no idea we we're even going out to a lighthouse until they got in the zodiac and they're like where are you taking us <laughs> mm-hmm. so but that was that was probably one of the most uh interesting but yet fun experiences i think i had with that lighthouse was getting someone like you that's a historian out there to witness it because right. you know You get you get everyone that's common that, you know, can tell a story, but you have validity behind your name that you're not really pulling, you know, the the wool over people's eyes. So people will believe you and say, hey, yeah, I had an experience out here.
0: Yeah. Well, I can't say I saw anything uh, other than the strange light kind of shooting across the the floor. Um, You know, it was certainly an interesting night. And, uh, you know, some stuff happened. I didn't, I didn't see a ghost, yeah. but definitely some interesting <laughs> stuff happened for sure. No doubt about it. So I think there's some interesting things going on at that lighthouse, but, uh, let's talk about big Bay point now. So you've, you've owned it for how long now?
3: Uh, this will, three years now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you've done great with it. And you were saying it's been a B&B since what, like 85, 1985? Is that about Yeah, bar? so the
3: end of 1985 is when they officially got it ready to go as a event breakfast.
0: Mm-hmm. So and possibly the to... oldest, oldest lighthouse B&B in the country, you were saying? Yeah, I,
3: I want to say it's uh, almost tied up there with the East Brother Lighthouse.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so the... the they're the two oldest uh, lighthouse B&Bs in the country. As I uh, said earlier, i uh, was in been in touch with Diana Stampler, who I'm interviewing tomorrow. And she said that there's stories to do with that lighthouse. And she was wondering if you had experienced anything, but you hadn't been there long when she was in touch with yeah. you. But I asked you and you said, well, something happened. Uh, and that's uh, I really want to hear about that today. So and maybe you can get a little background about what you had heard about the place, you know, when you when you first came there.
3: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, in my first, uh, purchasing the lighthouse, uh, I had heard plenty of stories, read stories online and, uh, the previous owners had a lot of issues with, I'm not sure if it was almost like a demonic type of entity that would come and turn the dishes upside down on the tables, open all the cabinets. And, um, I even had some past guests that stayed with me and said that they had their door open up so hard in the middle of the night that it broke the safety chain off. And so, um, in doing that i kind of you know did some digging and had you know people tell stories of seeing figures in their mirrors and stuff like that and uh the previous owner said uh said you know that you know that the place wasn't haunted upon purchasing and so you know you know after you know dealing with born flats i figured you know how how bad can it be so uh after i purchased a lighthouse uh we had a little sit down and they you know kind of admitted that you know there was some spirit activity here before but they they just didn't want it to, you know, affect this L.A. house, which is understandable because, if, you know, they had supposedly done a cleansing of the house, to say, to, you know, get the spirit out. And uh, so if it wasn't here, you know, then they're technically, you know, they're selling something that's not haunted. So, uh, but they said that the spirit was put outside of the building and that they couldn't talk about it anymore because that would be a welcoming cue for it to come back inside the house. So mm-hmm. I want to say about two weeks after they had left, um they had a, a apartment that they had made for themselves down in the basement and i heard a lot of rustling of boxes falling and i was uh, in the dining room area installing a new light fixture and uh you know i thought it was kind of interesting you you never know because you know their door to their apartment you know a lot of times was left unlocked so you know, maybe someone was sneaking in but the the key was i heard footsteps coming over from the other side of the duplex and there's a secret passage from each side of the duplex in the basement that you would have to know was there and if you're running into boxes Then I don't know how the heck you're gonna find the you know the mysterious opening over, and so the the footsteps came into our kitchen and I looked over but there was no one there at the time and so uh, they proceeded to come behind me and stopped right behind me in the dining room and so I looked and there was no reflection in the window but you know the hair on the back of my neck was you know like there was a lightning bolt that was gonna zap me, and uh, it just turned and walked out the front entry that's towards the lake and that was you know the last. I had of a spirit in this house. And so, um, you know, I don't know if it was something that was attached to the Prius owners or if they had purchased the lighthouse and the spirit was already here. I don't know any of that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I just like to joke that, you know, it found out that they had moved because they had pretty much left everything and just kind of left with, you know, a small amount of stuff. So maybe they didn't want the spirit to know that they were leaving the property. So yeah, uh, it, it got fooled. I don't know. It, it was just, it was loud enough and, you know, th- thank God there wasn't a visual because I was here by myself huh. and, you know, yeah, this place is very remote, you know. So coming from a coastal town in New England where, you know, you can reach out and to touch your neighbor's house to, you know, 25 miles from, like, the nearest gas station, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. and you, you see plenty of those movies where, the, you know, there's people hunting you through your windows. Because when it's dark out here, you don't see anything in the window but yourself.
0: Yeah. So yeah. You don't see outside uh, at night, you know. Right, right looking at out the window so so you're talking about uh movies uh that sort of uh resemble what you were just describing i just saw a movie recently called bad ben if you can call it a movie i think it was made for three hundred dollars <laughs> if i remember <laughs> right it's shot on video this guy uh shot it in, in his own home he starred in it the whole almost the whole thing takes place in his house uh it's kind of interesting though and it has to do with the uh, of a ghostly entity that starts giving him a hard time and at first he doesn't believe in it but uh, i won't tell you everything but it's there's been a whole bunch of sequels to it i guess uh which uh i brought probably also made for 300 or less but it's has uh, got kind of a cult following but he made me <laughs> think of that it's, but uh, i'm glad stuff that happened to him didn't happen to you well i find that with ghost
3: stories that you know when you start believing in them they kind of manifest and they can kind of almost take over your life, any sort of noise and stuff. You know, we have a lot of weather out here and stuff. And this is a yeah. you know, 125 or 30-year-old lighthouse. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's going to
0: creep. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I'll tell you, you know, I think that's true of a lot of that kind of stuff. It's probably just you've become aware of, of everything, like you said. And I, I've seen the same kind of thing happen with uh, people really into UFO stuff. You start yeah. seeing UFOs or uh, having black helicopters follow you or whatever it is. Like, <laughs> To, the men in black that show up at your house you know yeah, that have, uh, whatever but you start you open yourself up to it and it's probably not necessarily that more is happening to you but you start noticing everything more whatever yeah. or maybe more stuff is happening to you i'm not quite sure but yeah <laughs> anyway i hope that this uh whoever it is doesn't come doesn't come back to visit you again or if he does it's to help out maybe keep the place clean or uh, tend the light or whatever
3: pay the electric bill stuff like that you know the <laughs> to nice. do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah that would, you know, but uh yeah I, I i can't say that i've ever seen anyone in the mirrors or anything like that you know mm-hmm. sometimes you know you you kind of maybe wish there was maybe someone that a little more youthful in the mirror when you look you know hey oh it's still me <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah well nick uh you know uh we obviously we could talk for for a long time uh, about all kinds of stuff uh, a lot of stuff besides uh, haunted lighthouses and so forth and there's so much to talk about with your your property there and I know you're just generally into lighthouse preservation and I should mention while I'm on that subject that um, we're having an event uh, this people are going to be hearing this on May 12th uh, in the episode of the podcast it'll be released on May 12th and on May 15th three days from now we're having a virtual of the U.S. Lighthouse Society is having a virtual event. Um, to do with uh, lighthouses with overnight accommodations. And you're one of the people who's going to be taking part in that. Uh, We're going to have at least 10 people, maybe 10 or 12 people from lighthouses, uh, mostly in the US, but uh, probably a couple outside the US as well, who are the owners and or managers of properties where people can stay overnight. Uh, And uh, I'm excited about that. And uh, I think it's going to be a great event. So it's going to be four o'clock Eastern time. Uh, one o'clock pacific time on uh, saturday may 15th so perfect uh, people should should watch for that and uh, watch for the zoom link which will be posted on the uh u.s lighthouse society facebook page i hear do i hear a, a bell in your house Is there... uh,
3: i've got a, a addiction to clocks so i do apologize mm-hmm. if you're for the editing of this if you hear
0: multiple clocks going off that's okay. As long as it's, it's nothing, it's, it's an it's a natural sound we're hearing. It's nothing yeah. super. It's, a,
3: it's one of those things that they all are on their own time zone. So. You oh, can okay. I was wondering if, <laughs> I, right now it's by my watch is about two 12. So I'm not sure. Yeah. So this the living room. It's two fifteen in the living room and it's two ten in the dining room. So okay. D- different time zones. It's good for when I do my breakfast, you know, I can never be on time. So
0: I just go by the clock that's closest to the time that I posted. Uh-huh. Sounds good. Well, Nick, thank you so much. And we will be talking again because, as I said, there's a lot to talk about. It's always fun to talk to you. So thank you, Nick. Yeah, you're welcome.
1: To read more about Big Bay Point Lighthouse and the guest accommodations there, go to BigBayLighthouse.com. And to find out more about Diana Stamfler's book, Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses, and to buy a signed copy, check out mihauntedlighthouses.com
0: I'm lucky enough to own a signed copy. Thank you, Diana, for that. And thanks again to Diana Stampler and Nick Korstad. In episode 119 of Lighthearted, coming up this Sunday, May 16th, we'll be talking about one of America's iconic locations, the lighthouse at Montauk Point, New York. As always, thanks for listening, and
1: keep a good light. Let it shine, let it